So, hopefully you can all see a Bible, but if not, please wave, because I know some volunteer will go and grab some from the back. So if you can't see a Bible, I will be referring by verse reference, so do feel free to grab one. Um, Otherwise, I'm looking for one of the regulars who's going to wave in the back. Can you give me a wave if you can't see a Bible? Excellent. Can I have one? Brilliant. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. So I'll tell you what it says, Andrew. (laughs) I'll tell you what it says. Let's play this. So, you know... In my early 20s, I was a new Christian. I came to faith at university first time round. I have to say first time round because I've spent rather too much time at university in my life. In my early 20s, I expected to change the world in the power of the Spirit because, quite frankly, that's what we were all talking about at that time. It was something I believed that God had said to me that I'd have a part in a revival that would come to this nation. And it wasn't just what I felt God had said to me personally. It was also that at that time, people would prophesy over me. They would share with me what they felt God was saying. And it was like there was a sign in my he- over my head in the spirit that I couldn't see that must have said something because they all said the same thing to me. And so as a result, in my early 20s, I had this belief that I was going to be at the forefront of a coming revival in this nation. I also thought, not because God said but because I was in my early 20s, I also thought this could all happen by the time I was 40, and then I could die. Well, I'm not yet 40, but Jesus doesn't have long. Things have not panned out at this stage in the way that I wondered if they might in my early 20s. In fact, things have been very different. Most of what I'm doing now was never even remotely on my radar to do. And as I think about that experience, I think also about Samuel's experience. We've picked up partway through his story here in 1 Samuel 7. But I wonder whether he had a similar experience and that the number of expectations he had as a result of his early years perhaps didn't pan out on the timescale that he Expected. I wonder, in fact, whether for Samuel, in the intervening time before we get to this passage today, he might have thought that the things he believed for were never, ever going to happen. Now, those of you who are part of our regular services here will remember perhaps fairly easily what's in the early parts of 1 Samuel because we've been working through it as part of our Sunday preaching. But we first come across Samuel in 1 Samuel 3. Now, Samuel is a miracle baby. He is born to Hannah. God has this thing in the Bible whereby barren women get pregnant by the word of the Lord and tend to give birth to, often prophets actually, but men and women who turn out to be very significant in the history of God's people. And Samuel is one of these babies. Because he's Hannah's firstborn, because he is the child of promise, Hannah has said to God, I will give him back to you. And so Hannah does this in 1 Samuel 3. She gives him to the care of Eli, who is the chief priest at the time, in the temple that is located at Shiloh. Now, we don't know quite what age Samuel is, but it's after he's weaned. And in the Jewish tradition at this time, that would have been three or four years old. So Samuel, from the age of three or four, lives in the temple at Shiloh. He sleeps there. He sleeps alone in the temple. 
We know that he grows up learning the ways of God from Eli and from his sons. Sometimes he learns through virtue of the fact that Eli and his sons don't give the best of examples. But equally, he would have learned the practice of sacrifice, the practice of prayer from the fact that this is what Eli and his sons were doing continuously. Samuel would have learned what it was to follow God in this time. Now, also, he slept in the temple, as I said. Now, in the temple at this time was something called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was, on the face of it, just a box. But for the Jewish people at this time in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was so much more than a box. The Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God on earth. This is where God is located. So the Ark of the Covenant is in the temple at Shiloh, And Samuel gets to sleep in the temple near to the ark. Samuel is as close to the presence of God as you can get. So Samuel in these early days would have learned what it looked like to walk with God. He would have learned what it looked like to practice holiness. We know also from those early chapters that he establishes a reputation for having the word of the Lord. This is a young prophet in the making at a time in Israel when nearly nobody is hearing God's word. Samuel is the chosen one. Chapter 3 verse 20 tells us that he becomes established as a prophet before the Lord. And by chapter 4 verse 1, his word is coming to all Israel. So this is a youngish man, we don't know how old, and he has a degree of prominence in ministry. Samuel, in fact, you could say, had an incredible future ahead of him. If you were going to tip anybody for success, it would have been Samuel. This child of a barren woman, this miracle baby, this child of promise, this child who's grown up in the temple as close as possible to the ways of the high priest, as close as possible to the presence of God. This, this lad has success, future success written all over him. Now, I want to bet that you might know some people like that. We see them in the local church sometimes. Um, They are the people who get all the opportunities all of the time. Or perhaps you see them at school. They are the people who everybody likes, even the teachers like. They are just totally likable, so you can't even hate them because that would just be a bit odd. They just have like magic dust sprinkled over them. Or the people you work with. You know the ones who just get promotion after promotion after promotion? Or maybe it's your neighbors. They seem to have the magic dust. Just everything goes well for them. You look out of your window and you think, I know I'm not supposed to covet, but I do quite like the way they've done their house and I definitely want their car. There are people, aren't there, who have this magic dust. Maybe it's young politicians who are rising up the ranks really fast or in my world as an academic, it's young academics who are publishing so fast that you think, do you even have time to think between all those words that you're writing? In every walk of life, I think we can identify people who seem to have that kind of magic dust. And it would have been a little bit like Samuel was. In the church, perhaps, it's young worship leaders, it's young preachers who we put on bigger and bigger stages and we start celebrating them. Whoever those people are, you know who they are. You can tell they've got the magic dust. And what's more, if you've been around an evangelical charismatic church for any length of time, you've probably had this stuff proclaimed over you too. 
You've probably had people coming to lay a hand on you, to pray for you, to prophesy, and they will tell you that you are called to greatness in your generation. You are called to change the world with Jesus at the center. And as a result, many of us are expecting success. We are expecting success, whether that's in a kind of spiritual sense, whether that's in a professional sense, whether that's in a relational sense. Often we expect it to involve platforms or professional success or financial success. You know, we expect it to look like something. And I imagine that I'm not the only one who also thought that it would all happen pretty much immediately. Samuel, I think, lived with that incredible future in front of him. And in the chapter we have today, we have Samuel now coming into that incredible future. What happens in this passage is something that a whole generation would have spoken about for decades. This is the defining moment of Samuel's leadership of Israel. Isn't it interesting that the narrator, the one who's put this story together, doesn't think there's anything worth saying between Samuel's boyhood and this day. This is the day that Samuel makes it. Finally, the promise of his youth has come to be something concrete, and he is named leader of Israel. Why? Well, after many years of compromise by the nation, I mean such compromise that they've not only stopped following God, they seem to have forgotten that they've left the ark at Kiriath-Jerim. Now remember, the ark's not just a box. The ark is the presence of God. Oh dear, we've accidentally left God at Kiriath-Jerim and we've left him there for 20 years. This is how far the nation has fallen from God. They don't care that God is at Kiriath-Jerim because they're quite happy living the way they want to live. This was a pattern of the people in the times of the judges. They did as they pleased. But finally, if you look in the text, verse 2, just under the heading in the NIV, if that's the version you've got, then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. Finally, after 20 years, maybe more, all of Israel is ready to come back to God. And friends, this is Samuel's moment. He is prepped and ready. He's been ready probably for 20 years. He is ready to take the moment. And so what does he do? Verse 3, so Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. This is Samuel's moment of glory. Samuel unifies a people and leads them in submission to God this day. Then we know from the text, he gathers them at Mizpah, which is the place that he eventually leads from. And in that place at Mizpah, the whole nation gathered, he prays for them. And we see that in verses four and five through to six. And the narrator really wants us to know verse six. This is the point at which you can say Samuel's made it. Samuel is now leader or judge in some other translations of Israel. 
an entire nation repent this day. National revival takes place under Samuel's leadership. I look at that, I think, now that's a good day at the office. But it actually gets better. You see what happens next in the text that is that Israel's age-old enemies, the Philistines, think, aha, the whole of Israel is gathered at Mizpah. They are easy pickings. We can just go straight to Mizpah and take them all out. We will finally vanquish Israel. So the Philistines go to Mizpah. And the Israelites realize what's happening. And they cry out to Samuel, 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 what are we going to do? Samuel prays, verse 9. And he offers a sacrifice in worship on behalf of the people. And with Samuel's prayer to the Lord, with his sacrifice, the tables turn. And instead of Israel now getting destroyed, it's the Philistines who turn tail and run. And I don't know if you notice... But actually, the Philistines do not get destroyed through the strength of the men fighting. Have a look at verses 9, 10, and 11. What happens in verse 10 is that the Lord thunders with a loud thunder against the Philistines and throws them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Verse 11, it happens before Israel even makes it onto the battlefield. This is how great a victory Samuel leads that day. Samuel prays, Samuel sacrifices, and verse 11, we can see the men of Israel are still in Mizpah and have to rush out of it. But the routing has already happened in verse 10. So really all that's left for Israel is to chase the Philistines well away from Israel's land. God has done mighty, mighty things through Samuel. And without a doubt, this is the day that Samuel becomes established as the man. This is the one. This is the one with the magic dust. It's not just promised magic dust anymore. Now you can really see, in Christian terms, the anointing is upon Samuel. His early promise has now given way to an established track record. His faithfulness to God has enabled him to lead an entire nation in victory and in revival. And now he's about to embark on a season of great personal fruitfulness as well, which we'll see as we work through the rest of the book. This is the making of Samuel. But did you notice how long it took him to get there? Verse 2 gives us a clue. Verse 2 tells us that the ark at this point when this happens has been at Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years. Now, you remember I said the ark started off in Shiloh when Samuel was a boy. At some point, we don't know when quite because the text doesn't tell us, but at some point... Eli, who's the chief priest, allows the ark to be taken from the temple at Shiloh by Eli's sons into battle against the Philistines. 
Long story, and I won't go into it here, but it's not the kind of thing you do with the Ark of the Covenant, and Israel finds out the hard way. Israel loses the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines end up with it. Now, by the time the Philistines get it, they probably wish they didn't have it at all because some fairly crazy stuff happens in Philistine territory with the Ark of the Covenant. And they have it for maybe about seven months. But by about seven months after it has been captured by the Philistines, the Philistines are like, we don't want this. We do not want this box. It's not just a box, that's for sure. And they send it back to Israel. And it first, first ends up at a place called Beth Shemesh. The Israelites think, yay, we've got the ark back. Let's try and move the ark. And in trying to move the ark, they once again decide how they're going to do it without checking with God. Big error, always an error. And um, 70 of them die. Eventually, the ark becomes moved safely from Beth Shemesh to Kiriath-Jerim. And now 7 verse 2 tells us the ark at this point has been in Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years. So at a minimum, we have 20 years of Kiriath-Jerim time. We also have seven months when the ark is in the um, Israelite territory, uh, Philistine territory. We probably have some more time as well, but the scripture's silent, so we can't guess how much. We just know it's at least 20 years and seven months, and it could be a lot, lot longer. Between the time from when we have this story here in 1 Samuel 7 and the earlier story of Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, at least 20 years and seven months have passed and probably more. 20 or more silent years. 20 or more silent years for Samuel. He has the prophecies, he has the words, he has experienced God ministering powerfully through him in the early days. And then as far as this book is concerned, silence. Nothing of note until this day. 20 or more silent years. 20 or more silent years, knowing he had an incredible future and not seeing it come to pass. And I wonder what that felt like for Samuel. I wonder what he did in that season. Again, we have to be really careful here because we mustn't put into the words of the Bible something that's not there. And the text is silent. So I have to be careful what I deduce might have been happening in those 20 years. But I think I can make a reasonable deduction based on two pieces of evidence. The first piece of evidence is the material in 1 Samuel 3, which is the time that we have immediately before the silent years. And the second piece of evidence is this material in 1 Samuel 7 here, which is the time immediately after the silent years. Let me tell you a bit more about what Samuel was doing at those times. Before the silent years, immediately before the silent years, we see him being brought up in the rhythms and practices of a life that pleases God. We see the Lord being with him and revealing himself to Samuel. We see him establishing him as a prophet. We see Samuel living life before God in faith and obedience. Obedience to the word of the Lord, obedience in prayer, basic practices of worship. Now, during that time, of course, the ark moved, so it's possible that Samuel may have moved away from the temple. We don't know whether he stayed in the temple at Shiloh. We don't know how long the temple at Shiloh would have been operative, given that the high priest what killed over and died, and his sons were clearly not viable priests. But actually, it doesn't matter where Samuel was. I suspect that wherever he was, 
he was doing the same thing he'd always done. That he was engaging in the basic practices of faith and obedience. Worship, prayer, and listening to the word of God. Uh, You know, it's true for us as well, isn't it? Character is established today, whoever you are, whoever I am. Character is established today, whether you're 15 or you're 35 or you're 45 or 65. Characters established today. What you do today, what I do today, is going to determine who we are in 20 years' time. And so I think it's important that at the beginning of this period, before we hit the silent years, that we know for sure is what Samuel's doing. I think it's likely he would have continued doing that in the silent years. But listen for the second piece of evidence now, which makes me far more sure that that's what he was doing in his silent years too. The second piece of evidence is what does he do in this passage we've got in front of us? When the people come to Samuel and say, okay, we we finally figured it out. We need to repent. We need to turn back to God. Samuel, verse 3, straight away says, okay, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then the first thing you need to do is get rid of all your foreign gods. You need to give up on anything that could possibly compete with the Lord. You need to put it aside because there is only one God. Samuel knew the basic confession of Israel. Hear, O Israel, that there is only one God. He knew that. He was sure about that. and He wanted Israel to understand it. Samuel had not lost who he was. He had not lost the understanding of faith that he had. What else does he do? He's a man who knows how to pray. Now, if you don't practice prayer for 20 years, chances are when you're called upon to pray in a very important situation, you won't know how to pray. But this man, straight away, verse 6, he knows how to pray. More than that, he knows how to fast. He knows the power of giving up food for a season in order to direct one's heart more fully to God. He knows about prayer and fasting. He knows, verse 9, how to intercede on Israel's behalf. And more than that, verse 10, he knows how to turn the hand of the Lord. These are not the works of a man who's just today gone, oh yeah, I should probably follow God again. These are the works of a man, I think, who has spent 20 years or more, however many silent years there are, doing what he always did. Faith and obedience. Obedience in the basic practices of worship. So those two pieces of evidence cannot be conclusive about those silent years because we can't speak where the text is silent. But I think we can conclude it is most likely that this is what Samuel was doing. In Samuel's silent years, in Samuel's years when he knew the promises and nothing was happening. Have you had that experience with God? Where you know the promises and absolutely nothing is happening and you're like, God, are you even there? Did I dream that stuff? For me, personally, if I didn't have some of that stuff journaled, I'd conclude, yes, I definitely dreamt that stuff. But what did Samuel do in that season with that tension of the not yet being all that he knew? He submitted to the silence. He submitted in humility. Not only did he submit to God's refusal to raise him up, He also was committed to faith and obedience in basic practices of worship. Now, just knowing how life works might not be unreasonable to think that in those years there would have been a number of other rising stars, young 
people covered in the magic dust or the anointing, if we're being very Christian about it. You know what I mean. For whom everything was seeming to go right. And I wonder whether Samuel would have watched them and thought, I thought I had the promises. But Samuel obviously decides to stay submitted to the silence and committed to faith and obedience. Submitted and committed. And as I think about this, I'm aware of the ways in which it might speak to us. Many of us will find ourselves right now in what feel like silent years. God has not done yet what we felt he said he would do. Other people seem to be getting all the success and we're not. Others of us, no, we're not in the silent years. We're in the early days. We're in the days of promise. We're in the days when people prophesy the great stuff over us and we're so excited because Jesus is going to change a generation through us. And, and we think the silent years are never going to come. Actually, I can promise silent years are part of the Christian life. Even Jesus had them. Can you imagine Jesus coming to understand the fullness of his destiny as he read the scriptures and began to understand what was asked, what was demanded of the promised Messiah, coming into that revelation about who he was, being able at 12 to hold forth with the teachers in the temple. Can you imagine? He'd be growing into all of that, but he does nothing until he's 30, nothing of any import in his ministry. There are a lot of silent years even that Jesus had. So whether we experience our silent years now or not, chances are we will experience those silent years. And the question for you, the question for me is, okay, in those silent years, either right now or those silent years for which I'm trying to prepare myself, what will I do? One temptation, when we've heard the promises of God spoken over us, when we've seen the things we could do and be for God, one temptation is to run after trying to make those things happen. And there are so many ways that we can try to help God, so many ways that we can try to make it happen. Running after making these things happen can mean sometimes that we change church in order to put ourselves in a better position for the ministry that we're going to have. Or that we move job because then we're going to be better professionally regarded because we've got the right firm on our CV. Or perhaps we find better leaders, you know, leaders who are more anointed or leaders who are more professionally regarded. We do what it takes to get ourselves in the right place. We might try to promote ourselves. We might try to create opportunities for ourselves. We might even see someone else whose star is rising and think, I'm going to just attach myself to them. I'm going to become indispensable to them. So as they rise, I'm going up with them. Because God has promised these things for me and I'm going to help him. We can try to run after making it happen. All we can do, I think it's fair to say Samuel did, we can submit in humility to the silent years. We can submit to God's refusal 
for a season to raise us up. And we can submit to God for as long as it takes, whether that's 20 years or whether that's 60 years or whether in fact that's the whole of our lives. We can do that because we know we have this promise that one day all promises will be fulfilled in him. It might not be this side of death. We've not been great at saying that in the evangelical church, but it might not be this side of death. But we can submit to the silent years because eventually all God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. We can submit in humility to the silence and we can commit to faith and obedience. Faith that God is good, that God is sovereign, that he has a purpose and obedience to his commands, to his word. We can continue in obedience, in prayer, in worship, the basic things that constitute a life of obedience before him. We can run after. Lots of us do. Sometimes some of us have, and we've had to pull ourselves back and think, hang on, what am I chasing after? Where, where did I get confused? I had a Christian coach once who um, challenged me actually, because I felt in my early 20s like I needed to make it happen. And he said to me, hang on, whose kingdom are you building? Okay, (laughs) whose kingdom was I building? So sometimes some of us have begun running after trying to make it happen, but actually that's one choice, but it's not Samuel's choice. Samuel's choice is submit to the silence, commit in faith and obedience and trusting that God would raise him up at the right time. Friends, that's your choice today. It's my choice. What will you do? Will you run after it? Will you try and help God? Or will you just submit and commit? Why don't we take a moment to pray? Father, we confess that so often we stand guilty of trying to make stuff happen so that our own kingdom is built. And sometimes we do something about that, and sometimes we just plan it all in our heads, but we know we're just as guilty when we plan it all in our own heads. Please release us from the feeling of needing to establish our own success. Please forgive us where we have sought to establish our own success. And if for some of us that means a complete overhaul of our understanding of what the gospel is, then do that work in our minds and hearts, Lord. Because it's your kingdom, it's your power, it's your glory forever and ever. And we are so sorry that we get in the way of that. Lord, for those in this room who right now are in silent years and are despairing, Father, would you give them strength to keep submitting themselves under your hand, to continue submitting themselves to that silence and to continue committing themselves to trusting in you and to obeying you in basic practices of worship. God, we love what you did in Samuel's life. We pray that we might see our own kind of joy like that in our lives. 
But if we don't see it, this side of death, God, we choose to trust you with that too. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.